This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Gracious Father, thank you so much that we can come before you this morning on Trinity Sunday. Uh, We pray, Father, that your spirit will be with us as we look at your word. In your name's sake, amen. Good morning. The Trinity is about the character of God. It's the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our lives. On this Trinity Sunday, I'm going to be looking at Romans 5, 1 to 5 mainly, and in particular, the godly characteristic of being joyful amidst suffering. Now, normally my kids are helping David up top with the sound, and we were joking this morning where I said, you know, if I say anything that's too embarrassing, um, Josh or Alice, you're most welcome to drop the sound. So, David, you have full license to drop the sound if, uh, if anything is too long or verbose. Okay. So, how is it that some of the most content people are those without much at all? Yet those who seem to have everything in the world are actually at times quite miserable and morose. My work takes me into various um, developing contexts. Um, quite often seeing incredible suffering. And I must say, some of the kindness and greatest contentment I've ever witnessed has been from people who are enduring incredible suffering. I can think of the HIV AIDS positive mother in Swaziland, who, whose family invited us into their house for, for tea. And they shared with us the little that they had. I can also think of the Ebola survivor in Sierra Leone when I was working there. And um, many, the, this woman had lost her whole family and we did a workshop with Ebola survivors to try and help them to build their capacities and just to recover. And I remember the incredible joy the woman had where she said, it is just an amazing gift that God has given me life. Even though I've lost my family, I have tremendous joy in that. So, when we read the passage of Romans 5, 1 to 5, I was challenged by the instruction in verse three, which says to rejoice in our suffering. That means to be joyful in all circumstances. We've recently finished Lent, and the season of Easter is also over, and we celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. Easter is a bit like New Year's, in that we celebrate hope and renewal. So what type of New Year's resolution have we been making? Based on the passage, I want to suggest that having joy should be one of our resolutions. You see, the resurrection is not just a one-off event. It is the power that is supposed to come into our lives. It is the same power that can transform our character and make us full of humility, kindness, meekness, forbearance, and love for another, one another, and also joy. The resurrection is the power coming into our lives, transforming us into Jesus' likeness. Can you think of an example of unadulterated joy? Maybe in your life, maybe in someone else's life. For me, it's the sound of children playing, having a water fight, at least no one getting injured, or a couple getting married, or when your favorite football team wins. I can think of uh, Liverpool winning the Champion League just recently, and uh, my youngest boy, uh, Calvin, who is a very avid football fan, and I'm not quite as avid as he is, um, having 
an incredible sense of joy when he knew that his team had won. The problem, though, with this type of joy is that it's fleeting and temporary, like the joy of the sun in your face or the joy of eating your favorite ice cream or the joy of having a cold breeze on you even now. It's temporary. There is, however, a joy that can transform you in the midst of suffering. This is the joy the Bible talks about, a joy that transcends the temporary fleeting pleasures of this world, many of which are really positive and great things, but is centered on the hope of the glory of God, as you speak in verse two. So I ask you, are we joyful or are we grumpy? The Bible says that as a Christian, it's not an option to be grumpy. Instead, we should have a deep sense of the joy even though we live in a fallen world and circumstances are oftentimes very difficult. As we look at the joy of suffering, I'm indebted to the Presbyterian Reformed Baptist Church, Redeemer Church in New York, which talks about the paradox of joy or the dilemma, the nature of joy and the discipline of joy. So I want to have a look at the paradox of joy. I don't know about you, but I find the truths of the Bible at times paradoxical and hard to understand. A verse in the Bible, when you look at it first, it may seem contradictory, but when you look at it more closely, it's actually true. Christianity, in fact, forces us to confront some of the most difficult paradoxes. For instance, Jesus presented a paradox from Mark 8.35 when he declared, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and the gospel's sake will save it. You mean you must lose your life to save it? This would be nonsense from someone, from anyone, but coming from Jesus, who lost his life only to take it up three days again, three days later. Authentic Christianity, as defined by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, is filled with paradoxes. Look at Matthew 5, where the poor will inherit the riches of heaven, and only those who will mourn will be comforted and it is a blessing to be persecuted. But perhaps the most difficult paradox of all is the one before us this morning, finding joy in suffering. It seems to be foolish and nonsensical, but nothing can be truer for Christ and for Christians. Christ's suffering results in endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, as we saw in the passage. Now allow me to indulge in a, a hobby of mine. I'm a keen cyclist, and in Namibia, there's a cycle race called the Desert Dash. You cycle from Windhoek to Swakopmund. It's a 200-mile uh, race, or from those of Britain, about 370 kilometers. And I've got to admit, it is grueling, but it's beautiful. You leave at three o'clock in the afternoon at 41 degrees Celsius, you cycle through the desert, through the night, you have the moon to guide your path, and you arrive the next morning at the coast. It is grueling, but once you get through the pain, you can experience the joy of completing the race. Perhaps I can think of another illustration that may be closer to the not-so-cycle-friendly people. Childbirth. In John 16:21, Jesus explains that when a woman is in labor, she has pain and because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish, that of, the, the anguish of the pain, but because of the joy that has been born into the world. And I can attest to that with our three boys. 
The pain is still there, but it coexists, and the joy has been swallowed up with it. This is the paradox of joy. So who wants to be happy? Now, regardless of who you are, whether a Christian or not, everyone generally wants to be happy in some form or other. Most of us long for the happily ever after stories. Prince Charming brings Cinderella her glass slipper or the and, and turns her into a princess. A, a beautiful girl turns an ugly beast into a handsome prince. Or the peak of the happiness is reached at the white wedding at the end of the, of the Disney movie. All of these stories, sorry, I lost my point. We all long for these stories and our, mind, um, our minds jar when we don't have a happily ending ever after story. An unexpected shock from the Star Wars The Last Jedi movie is that most of the heroes are killed at the end of the movie. Can you imagine the heroes are killed? This grinds against our wish for happily ever after endings. You see, we all want to attach our stories to these great stories of unending joy and happiness, of walking off into the sunset. In a slightly jaded blog I read, it said, happily ever after stories or endings are dangerous to believing. In a magazine, The Tempest, it says, the reason he gives is, where's the allowance for human error, the grit of life? The reality is life is much different. Life is tough. My almost 80-year-old father, who's been writing his memoirs, said he titled it Life Bites for obvious reasons. Life hurts, it bites. There are many problems in this world, both personal, family, community, societal, and governmental level. We only need to look at a newspaper and we will see a myriad of problems. As we confront them though, we can easily become either cynical, bitter, or even condescending towards others. There is no Superman or Captain America to come and rescue us. So what happens is our hearts are broken and what is left behind is regret. So how do we respond? Well, we generally mask or repress this joy with a sober analysis of the situation. We become sensible adults. Or instead, we buy up and buy into the lie that true joy is unobtainable and can only be found in fleeting pleasures. Like the gentle breeze that cools us in a hot summer's day, or the sun that warms us on a cold winter's night, we appreciate winter's day, we appreciate these pleasures, but with a sobering realization that they are temporary and fleeting. Or, a lot of times we just give up. We close down that part of our lives that has been hurt. We resign and we become bitter and joyless. Fyodor Dostoevsky, a famous Russian artist, known for his realistic account of everyday life, said pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. He also has a wise observation in which he said, the really great man, or men I think, have great sadness and truth. The point he's making is that suffering is an unavoidable part of life. However, no matter what you think of Jesus, everyone longs for a deep joy in their lives. So what do we do? Do we give up? Read our kids happily ever after stories? Or Dostoevsky? How do we find the joy referred to in Romans 5 that rejoices in our suffering?
The nature of joy, the second part. The nature of biblical joy is found in suffering. We will never understand joy unless we confront the suffering in the world. It's only when we actually experience joylessness or disappointment and confront and think about suffering that we will then understand the nature of joy. Our suffering is key to understanding the nature of biblical joy. Allow me to share a personal example. A couple in church in Namibia where we used to go to were strongly advised during their pregnancy to abort their unborn child as developmentally the child only had half a brain. They prayed and resolutely decided to keep the child, whom they named Rachel when she was born. The miracle was Rachel, except for needing glasses, developed quite normally. But tragedy struck. A few years later, they were driving to the coast in South Africa, and their front tire blew. And the car rolled, and their oldest son and Rachel were both killed and their mother lost their leg. We happened to visit them 18 months ago. And whilst their tragic loss was still palpable, they had an incredible intimacy and peace of spirit about them. And their dad spoke with joy about his Christian work in South Africa. So despite their suffering, and incredible it was, they had found a biblical joy in their lives. Thus, to understand biblical joy, we need to confront our suffering. But at the same time, the suffering of God is also key to understanding biblical joy. So our own suffering and God's suffering are key to understanding this. So let's have a look at our suffering and then God's suffering. First, our suffering. What causes you to lose your joy? The reason we lose our joy is because our strategy for joy is wrong. Not the goal in itself, no, the strategy. What brings you joy? could be the perfect job, or the right relationship, or so many likes on your Facebook posts, or the perfect house, or in my case, a perfect carbon fiber bicycle. But when we lose or don't get the job, or the relationship falls apart, or no one likes your posts, or your dream house doesn't materialize, or your carbon fiber and bicycle breaks, as they do, you are disappointed and lose your joy. The problem is, that we are putting our hopes in things that are fleeting and temporary. And when we lose that, we lose our joy. Like the cool summer breeze or the winter sun, it is unstable, temporary, and fleeting. So we become disillusioned, despondent, and full of regret. Perhaps even one of the worst things that can happen is that these temporary and fleeting things are never taken away. Maybe the one of the worst successes is to have worldly success. This sentiment is observed in Mark 10, when Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The idea being that the things of the world, many of which are good things, separate us, can separate us from God. So to believe the strategy that we will find happiness ever after in our job, our spouses, our children are wrong. Though many of these things are good things, your happiness will be shallow and unsatisfying. Our souls are far too significant to be satisfied with something as fleeting as an apartment or a job. The truth is, we will not find joy unless we are in his presence, unless we obey him 
and conform ourselves to his life. Then we will be happy and blessed and find the happily ever after, even amidst suffering. This is Paul's point in Romans. The problem, though, with the human heart is that we've changed the truth of God for a lie. Like Adam and Eve, we believe that we know better than God. So we ignore God. And so we bring upon suffering to the world and to ourselves. If we look at Romans 1, that comes across clearly when God gives man up to a debased mind, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. So as a result, there are a number of us who do not experience joy. Some are going through difficult and hard times. It's like the tree in the winter that doesn't have leaves, but it's there. For a lot of us, the reason church is boring and we don't enjoy reading the Bible, praying, or telling people about Jesus is because we've bought into the strategy of the world and there are things in our lives that are ungodly. Perhaps we are holding on to something that's not right or from God. If so, you know what it is. It may be some sort of addiction or some unrestored relationship. I don't know what it is. The Bible says this robs us of our joy. It separates us. It fractures our relationship with God. It robs us of the incredible closeness and intimacy we can enjoy with God. To illustrate, King David was joyful, singing and dancing, but after Nathan confronted him with his adultery and covering up of the murder of Uriah the Hittite, in brokenness and repentance, he prays. He asked God in Psalm 51, do not cast me from your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. David was missing joy. He was missing God, the contentment and gladness that comes from obedience to God. He believed the lie that his happiness was better than God. So if you are a Christian and suffering joylessness, look at your life. How do you set your life from the things above? How do you experience the power of the resurrection to transform us? How does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit feature in our lives? One of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis. I call it the mud pie quote. It says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The second point in the nature of joy is to understand the suffering of God. Looking at Hebrews 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Think about this. What was the joy referred to here? Jesus faced the most horrible death on the cross for us. We were his joy. It's an incredible truth that the God of the universe, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and allow me to quote from Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of earth in a measure and weighed the mountains of the scale, that he rejoices in us. We are his joy, and the God of the universe takes such incredible pleasure in us. God takes such pleasure in us that he sent his son to die for us, and this is the love of God, and that should be your source of joy. He has sent his son so that we can have peace, hope, be justified, we are reconciled to God, all because of the death of Jesus. Knowing that should flood us with joy. 
When Jesus went to the cross, he had a deep trust as he obeyed his Father because he knew that we were going to become part of his family. This was his joy. So we need to merge our joy with his joy. The happily ever after story I mentioned about is actually closer to reality than we think. Jesus is the superhero. I wouldn't call him Captain America, but he is the superhero who came to rescue us. He is the hero, hero that laid down his life. As I close, how do we apply this in our lives? One thing is to experience this, but how do we exercise discipline to take this forward in our lives? Firstly, we need to wean our hearts from the affections of this world. The affections in heaven means aligning our lives to his story, not ours. We should seek first his righteousness and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where rust does not destroy and thieves cannot steal. There's a common misconception that being a Christian is a killjoy. I even read somewhere that an online survey in the USA asked people who their least favorite neighbors are, and they said evangelical Christians. But Jesus is anything but a killjoy. He is joy incarnate. To illustrate Jesus' first public act was to turn water into wine. He creates joy at a wedding party. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, People even said they thought that those receiving the Spirit were drunk. They were seen as way too joyful. We can only imagine the joy we will experience when our Lord Jesus returns. Secondly, being able to rejoice in circumstances of life means we have to argue the logic of the gospel into our lives. We should be affected by the sacrificial beauty of the gospel and constantly remind ourselves of this hope. The resurrection is evidence that there is hope, and we need to argue this logic back into our lives. For instance, we can argue the logic of Psalm 97, which says the Lord reigns, the righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. In my experience of seeing injustice and suffering throughout the world in my work, especially affecting the vulnerable, oppressed, and marginalized, what has encouraged me the most has been the gospel because righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne and he reigns. I understood that this injustice and suffering that I was seeing, though appalling, was temporary and this gave me tremendous hope. So we need to argue the logic of the Bible back into our lives. The point is, the Bible says God is powerful and good and this is a powerful logic to pray into our lives. Now, if God is just powerful and not good, what does that make him? Then he's a dictator and he can't be trusted. If he's good and not powerful, then well, he's a nice man, a well-intentioned martyr who wasted his life for nothing. But the Bible says he is powerful and good. And as a result, he can be trusted. And because he is powerful and has overcome death, we can overcome our sufferings too. The fact that God died for us whilst we were sinners shows that he is good. That's the evidence. And the fact that he was resurrected after three days shows he is powerful. So we need to argue and pray this logic into our lives because it's true. So let the truth inform and help us in our suffering. Lastly, in verse 2 it says we need to celebrate the hope of the glory. So Paul is using past tense here. 
The fact is, we have been justified, reconciled, and everything else in comparison is sepia or insignificant. As a Christian community, we come together to worship as we need to keep the hope of the gospel before us. Everything else is a reference or an epilogue in our lives. We have already won. We are victorious. Death has been defeated. So by worshiping today and worshiping God in our lives, by meditating on his word and singing psalms to each other, we rehearse the hope of the gospel in front of our hearts. This is the logic that we need to pray and meditate on so that the beauty of the Bible becomes evident. Then we will have joy. Then this is our happily ever after. Then the character of God, that is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be evident in our lives. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words on Romans 5. Tough words and difficult for us to put into practice. I pray, Father, by your spirit, you will give us the beauty, the logic, and the hope of the gospel. May we experience Jesus so that we can go out to sing in his name. And thank you, Father, for you, for your Son, and for your Holy Spirit, which gives us the means and the ability to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.